Okay, brothers and sisters, praises be to our loving Father that we are still able to continue to study His holy words and His commands. Now, for many of us, it brings us really great joy when we are able to look into Scripture and kind of look for the treasures and nuggets of wisdom that we can use to apply in our, day, our daily life. This gives us joy because it connects us in fellowship with Abba and His beloved Son. So we continue with this work of proclaiming the truth of the Holy Scriptures, the Word of our Father. And so for today's episode of the BQA, the Bible questions and answers, we will discuss two questions. The first one being, did Joshua's long day cause Sunday to become the new Sabbath? That's the question we're going to be addressing first. There's also another question, which we kind of left off last week, which we'll be answering today. Uh, who were these seven lampstands mentioned in the book of Revelation? So let's go with the first question. Uh, does Joshua's long day change the observance of Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday, because there are those who are pushing that the sacred day or the holy day is no longer Saturday or no longer Sabbath day, but it's now a falls on a Sunday. And one of the things that they do to kind of make their point or give credence to that argument is they cite a Joshua's long day. And so they say Joshua's long day causes us or causes a change from Saturday to Sunday. Now, before we can discuss further, uh, if this merits a proper change from Saturday to Sunday, we need to first understand, well, what is Joshua's long day in the first place, right? I mean, how many here have heard about Joshua's long day before? Perhaps some of you have, perhaps some of you have not. So let's go ahead and spend some time in looking at this question first. What is Joshua's long day? For, get, for us to get the context of the long day of Joshua, that is described in the Holy Scriptures, it's good that we look at the context of the chapter where we find this reference. And so let's go with Joshua chapter 10, 1 to 2. Adonizedek, the king of Jerusalem, because at this time, Jerusalem did not belong to the people of Yisrael. It still belonged to the Canaanites. So Adonizedek, the king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had captured and totally destroyed Ai, and had killed its king, just as he had done to Jericho and its king. He also heard that the people of Gibeon had made peace with the Israelites and were living among them. The people of Jerusalem were greatly alarmed at this because Gibeon was, a large, was as large as any of the cities that had a king. It was larger than I, and its men were good fighters. And so we know that after the death of Moses, Joshua became the successor. He became the appointed leader of all of Yisrael. And Joshua led the people of Yisrael to enter the promised land, which was Canaan. One of the great stumbling blocks was Jericho. But we know with the help of Yahuwah, instructing the people of Yisrael to blow trumpets. We know what happened to the walls. It fell. And so Jericho was conquered. After that, I was conquered. And then the Gibeonites... Well, they kind of tricked the people of Yisrael to making peace with them. So Yisrael, because of their vow to Yahuwah, because the name of Yahuwah was invoked, they were committed to living with at peace with the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites and the people of Yisrael became kind of like allies. In other words, Gibeon became the slaves of Yisrael. And so Adonizedek, the king of Jerusalem, well, they heard and are hearing about the conquest of Yisrael led by Joshua. And so they were alarmed. 
They were afraid because they knew they were going to be conquered next. And so the king decided to do something about that. What did he do? Let's read Joshua 10, 3 to 5. So Adah, this is really a hard name to pronounce. So Adonizedek uh, sent the following message to King Hoham of Ebron, King Piram of Jarmuth, King Japhia of Lachish, and the King Debir of Eglon. Come and help me attack Gibeon, because its people have made peace with Joshua and the Israelites. These five Amorite kings, the kings of Jerusalem, Ebron, Jarmuth, Lashish, and Eglon joined forces, surrounded Gibeon, and attacked it. And so what did Adonizedek decide to do because of, of his fear that they were going to be conquered next by the conquering the Yisrael forces. Well, they decided to band together together with other Amorite kings. So the king of the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, they joined forces and they want to surround Gibeon so they can take Gibeon back because they were a people of, uh, they were great warriors as a people. So that's what they did. So they attacked Gibeon. So what did the Gibeonites do? In verse six, the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal. Joshua, at this point, the people of Yisharah, they were in Gilgal. And so the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal. Do not abandon us, sir. Come at once and help us, save us. All the Amorite kings in the hill country have joined forces and have attacked us. And so the Gibeonites, uh, because they were serving the people of Yisharah, they decide to send an, an, an SOS. They, want, they wanted the assistance of the Israelites. And so when Joshua heard this message, what was his response? So Joshua and his whole army, including the best troops, started out for Gilgal. So Joshua, of course, um, responded to the request for aid by taking his whole army and they marched towards Gilgal. And so the distance between Gilgal and, and the Gibeonites and Gibeon, it was about 20 miles. And so it would take him the whole evening to go to reach Gibeon. And then in verse 8, Yahuwah said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have already given you the victory. Not one of them will be able to stand against you all night. Joshua and his army marched from Gilgal to Gibeon, and they made a surprise attack on the Amorites. And so before Joshua takes his uh, whole army to Gibeon, right, before they travel and defend the Gibeonites, I am sure that Joshua prayed first because this was his mistake at I. He did not consult Yahuwah. And so they were defeated by this small group of people from, from, uh, from I. Uh, so Joshua learned that he should consult with God first. He should have consulted with God about the Gibeonites as well. And so this time he prays to God. This is why in verse 8, it mentions Yahushua, Yahuwah said to Joshua, and so Yahuwah responded by saying to Joshua, do not be afraid of them. I have already given you the victory. That's an awesome promise. The promise that Yahuwah is saying to Joshua, he's basically telling Joshua, it's as good as done. But even though Yahuwah says to Joshua, it's as good as done, take note, the Israelites, they still had to work. It doesn't mean that Yahuwah is going to do everything for them. Yahuwah gave the promise, but because, because the promise was given to them, that should inspire them 
to do the work so that they can work together with Yahuwah. So all night, Joshua and his army marched from Gilgal to Gibeon, and they surprised attacked the Amorites. And so what happened after this surprise attack? Let's read what it says in the book of Joshua 10, 10 to 11. Yahuwah made the Amorites panic at the sight of Israel's army. The Israelites slaughtered them at Gibeon and pursued them down the mountain pass at Beth Horon, keeping up the attack as far south as Azekah and Makeda. While the Amorites were running down to pass from the Israelite army, Yahuwah made large hailstones fall down on them all the way to Azekah. More were killed by the hailstones than by the Israelites. And so when the people of Israel, the whole army, they surprised attacked the Amorites, when they did so, Yahuwah caused the Amorites to panic at the sight of Israel's army. The Israelites slaughtered them at Gibeon, and so they were going to go back to their fortified cities, right? It was retreat because they were afraid. And so they were headed back to their fortified cities. But while doing so, Yahuwah made large hailstones to fall down on them. And so when they were all going back to their fortified cities, what did Joshua decide to do? Let's read 12 to 13, because after all, Joshua did not want them to escape and recuperate. He wanted to get the job done as soon as possible, because these were five different fortified cities, five different kingdoms. They were already there in the open country. And so he had the chance to completely destroy them, but they were all running and retreating. And so what did Joshua decide to do? In jo uh, Joshua 10, 12 to 13, on the day Yahuwah gave the Amorites over to Israel, Joshua said to Yahuwah in the presence of Israel, O sun, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself on its enemies, as it is written in the book of Jashak. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. And so what did Joshua pray? What did he request from Yahuwah? Because the enemies were retreating. He wanted uh, more opportunity to go after them and complete the mission, complete the job. And so he needed more daylight to do that. And so what did he do? He prayed and said, O sun, uh, stand still over Gibeon, O moon, over the valley of I Jalan. And so this was the prayer of Joshua to our father, Yahuwah. And as you can see, Yahuwah answered the prayer because the sun stood still. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. So here we have an instance, an example of the awesome power of Yahuwah. I mean, how many people can do that? How many people can cause the sun to be still, right, for about 24 hours? about a full day. That's omnipotent power. No other force in the whole universe can do that. But Yahuwah can do that with but, a, with but a thought, right? With but a word. And so this shows us the power of Yahuwah. However, there are those who are skeptics, those who are atheists, those who don't believe the Bible scripture, who use this verse and make the claim that proves that the Bible is not inspired. Because they say, well, how can the sun stand still, right? We all know Science has shown us again and again and again, without any doubt, that it's the, wor the, the world, the earth, that is moving around the sun. And if the earth is rotating, 
which gives the illusion of the sun going up and down, right? And so when the Bible says the sun stood still and the moon stopped, it shows that the Bible is not inerrant, that it's really not inspired. It's not true scripture because here's an obvious mistake. And so Joshua, according to them, made a scientific, uh, an unscientific uh, statement. However, it's very easy to disprove that. It's very easy to rebut that argument because when it comes to the Holy Scriptures, we have to understand Scriptures is written in different forms, some poetry, some narrative, right, some prophecy. And oftentimes they use what are called figures of speech. We do the same thing today. And oftentimes when the writers of Scripture write, they use the language of appearance. And so when Joshua was writing in his book, he was writing what he was seeing. I mean, when we look outside and we see the sun, we go to the beach, for example, right? We start out at 12 uh, noon, and then we, we're on the beach all day long. What do we notice about the sun? It's going down. Are we saying to ourselves, oh, look at the rotation of the earth? No, we're using the language of appearance. It's the same thing when we watch a newsman or a, a weatherman or a weather person, when they give the weather report, right? We call it sunrise. We call it sunset. Again, it's the language of appearance. And so its purpose is not to give a scientific or technical description of what's happening. It's giving us what, what is appearing in our mind's eye and in our eyes. It's the language of appearance because we know the sun doesn't actually rise and the sun doesn't actually set. It's the rotation of the earth that's creating that illusion. And so we have sunrise and sunset. When we say sunrise and sunset, for example, are we going to be accused of not being scientific? No. But not only that, when you really think about it, what Joshua said about the sun moving and the sun stopping, it's actually kind of true. It is absolutely true. Consider uh, what is written here from the book, Many Infallible Proofs, Practical and Useful Evidences for the Christian Faith, written by Henry Morse. This is what it says. All motion is relative motion. I want to pause it for a while. Everything is moving. The sun is also moving, right? The earth is moving. The galaxy itself is moving. Everything is moving. Even empty space is moving. And so when you think about motion, you have to describe it in terms of a reference point. It's relative to this. For example, what is the speed of the earth relative to the moon? What is the speed of the earth relative to the sun? What is the speed of the earth relative to uh, the Milky Way? And so you always have to really, when you think scientifically, you always have to give a reference point. So all motion is relative motion, and the sun is no more fixed in space than the earth is. The scientifically correct way to specify motions, therefore, is to select an arbitrary point of assumed zero velocities, and then to measure all velocities relative to that point. So you have to, we have to select a reference point by which to determine the velocity of an object that's moving. The proper point uh, to use is the one which is most convenient uh, to the observer for the purposes of his particular calculations. In the case of movements of the heavenly bodies, normally the most suitable point is the Earth's surface at the latitude and longitude of the observer. And this is therefore, and this therefore is the most, quote unquote, scientific point to use. And so based on this, Joshua's description about the sun standing still 
it's actually a scientific uh, statement. And so using the language of appearance, the language of reference or relative motion, we know there is no error in scripture when Joshua described the long day, right? The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. Now, let's try and make sense of this. What exactly happened that is described here by Joshua as the sun stopping in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day? What exactly happened there? Well, there are some Bible scholars who see this account as being poetical. It's just a poem, and it's a poetical description of the battle and not to be taken literally. The danger with that kind of thinking, however, is you can basically spiritualize everything and make everything poetic, right? Like the whole thing is a poem, and you can make it uh, communicate whatever it is that you want if you cast everything in Holy Scriptures as poetry. And the reason why they say this is poetry and it's not a literal uh, fulfillment is because in the quotes, right? You look at the quotes, it's highlighted there. O, o sun, stand still over Gibeon. O moon, over the valley of Aijalon. So the sun stopped still and the moon stopped. And then the, as it, he quotes, as it is written in the book of Jashar. And the book of Jashar is a, it's a, his, it's a book of poetry. And in the book of poetry, it describes uh, many of the accomplishments of the people of Elohim described in poetic form. And so they say, okay, Joshua was quoting a poem. And so it wasn't describing what actually happened. However, when you look at verse 13, the last part of verse 13, it's no longer poetry. It's part of the narrative. The sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. So even if you ignore verse 12, even if you ignore verse 13, part A, Verse 13, part B tells us the narrative. Something's happening. Something is literally happening. And what is that? The sun appears to be stopping in the middle of the sky, and it delayed going down about a full day. And so this is Joshua's long day. And so I believe it's a physical, literal fulfillment. Something happened, which is why we call it a miracle. We believe in miracles. Because life itself is a miracle. The creation of the universe is a miracle, especially when it was done in six days. But in actuality, Yahuwah can create it in just a snap of a finger, right? With just a breath, he can create all of it. But he decided to do, to do it in six literal days. And so what could be the possible physical fulfillments of this long day of Joshua? Well, several Hebrew scholars and other um, other uh, students of the Holy Bible, they propose some possible, some possibility, some possible events, some proposed explanations of Joshua's long day, some uh, form of refraction, bending of the light from the sun and the moon. According to this view, God miraculously caused the sunlight and moonlight to continue in Canaan for about a whole day. And so Yahuwah, what he did, the miracle itself is to somehow bend the light. So even if the earth turned in such a way so that the uh, Jerusalem or Canaan is no longer receiving daylight from the sun, Yahuwah uses um, the miracle of bending the light, refraction, to provide light nonetheless, okay? And so that's one way of uh, 
a possible explanation or fulfillment. Another one is a wobble in the direction of the Earth's axis of rotation. We all know that the Earth is rotating around the sun. And there's also a planet called Mars that rotates around the sun. Sometimes they get close to each other. And when they're close to each other, they kind of resonate with each other. And it causes a wobble in the direction of the axis of rotation. And when this happens, a precession occurs. And it will create the appearance of the sun and the moon standing still. This can also be produced by asteroids. So that's one possibility. And some field of passages refer to an eclipse of the sun, because when they look at the Hebrew words for stopping, the sun stopping, it could also mean the, 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 the sun was being dim, something like that. Okay, so these are the possibilities. However, I believe when we look at the actual scripture, when we look at verse 13, it tells us what it actually really means. And so in verse 13, it says the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. And so what this tells us is the sun, it didn't really stop. It stopped in the sense that it's uh, way down. In other words, the rotation of the earth, which causes the sun to appear is going down, slowed down, right? And so it delayed going down for a full day. And so there was a delay for about a full day so that the sun from the time of noontime all the way to sunset, it took an additional 24 hours, almost 24 hours. And so that's one other possibility. The rotation of the earth temporarily slowed down to allow for prolonged sunlight, like an extra 24 hours of day, extra 24 hours of sunlight. Okay, so that's one possibility. And that's what I believe is to be the case. Is that something that Jehovah can do? Yeah. Can we explain it physically? No. Can we explain it using the laws of physics? No. Because if it can be explained using the laws of physics, then it's no longer a miracle, right? We believe that Yahuwah transcends the limitations of space and time, the limitations of laws that give us boundaries of what is physically or not physically possible. So the rotation of the earth uh, slowed down temporarily to cause an additional 24 hours be before the sun actually set, before sun down. Now, when it comes to this event, there's a, an urban myth that involves Joshua's long day. And I think some of you have heard of this urban myth before. What is that urban myth? It is this, an alleged report that scientists using computers at NASA to check planetary positions discovered that a day was missing from history. Have you heard about this before? Yeah, I remember growing up, you know, there's sometimes where the minister from our church would preach a lesson and they would cite this. I remember my boss, my district minister, he even used a lesson and he used this as fulfilled as an example to tell us that science actually confirms scripture, right? But this is actually an urban myth. This is this never really happened. And in that urban myth, the story is scientists working at NASA. They wanted to use supercomputers and they discover like a missing day in all the planetary movements and the movements of celestial bodies. And this missing day was explained by Joshua's long 
day. Now, of course, I don't believe in that urban myth because it doesn't really make any sense. However, consider this. If this long day actually took place, right? I mean, think about it. If the Earth slowed down its rotation, what do you think people all over the world are going to experience? Some will experience a long day. Some will experience a long night, depending on where they were at when this occurred, right? And so if this was true, if it was an actual historical event, we can expect cultures from different, um, uh, from different nations all over the world will have some kind of story or legend about a long day or a long night, right? Well, it turns out that is the case. Non-biblical confirmations of the long day and the long night. Greek myth of Apollo's son, Pathon, who disrupted the sun's course for a day. Its source was actually Joshua's long day. The ancient Chinese writings, there's a legend of a long day. There's also Babylonian and Persian legends of a day that was miraculously extended. The New Zealand Maori people have a myth about how the hero Maui uh, showed the sun, slowed the sun before it rose. The Mexican annals of Acuantitlan, uh, the history of the empire Culhuacan in Mexico, records a night that continued for an extended time. So this was a long night. Herodotus, an ancient historian, recounts that while, while in Egypt, a priest showed him their temple records and that he read of a day, a day which was twice the natural length of any day that had ever been recorded. So there are historical documentation, whether it's recorded as actual history or as legend, that corroborate this event that took place in history, which was a long day. And so having said that, having identified Joshua's long day, now we can answer the question, well, does Joshua's long day change the observance of Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday? Because the way that works is because they cite verse 13, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. And so this long day of Joshua is about how long? About 48 hours, right? 24 plus almost 24, about almost 48 hours, about two days. And so one, so that means you have to move uh, the following day to, be, to count as another day. And so you kind of move Saturday to Sunday. So Sunday becomes a new Sabbath day. Here's their, their explanation. The week in which Joshua's long day occurred contained an extra 24-hour period. Okay. This would be the period described as about a whole day. Okay. If Joshua's battle occurred, for instance, on a Wednesday, then there were eight 24-hour uh, periods in the week of Joshua's long day instead of seven. Right. So it's an additional day for the whole week. Since Wednesday would be about 48 hours long, it would now also include Thursday because it's 48 hours. The following day, Friday, would then become the day that was Saturday. And Saturday, what would have been the seventh day of this week, would now become Sunday. Make sense? Do you see their argument? And so to kind of show it to you visually, this is what we have in a typical week. How many days in a week? How many <laughs> It's not a trick question. How many days? Seven, right? With Sunday being the first day and Saturday being the seventh day. And so each day is how long? 24 hours. So each day is 24 hours long, okay? And so let's say the battle 
the, the long day of Joshua, the battle took place on day four, Wednesday, right? And so how long was that day? I mean, what happened? It was, uh, yeah, it, it, it produced an extra 24 hours of daylight. So this is how it would look like, right? So the day four in Joshua's long day, according to them, it will now include Wednesday and Thursday, right? And so if that will include Wednesday and Thursday, then what would happen to day five and to day six? Well, it will become Friday and Saturday, and you, you have to add another day for the Sunday. And so Sunday now becomes day seven. You see that? Sunday becomes a new day seven because Wednesday and Thursday become incorporated in Joshua's long day. So you kind of bump the Saturday. And so you make the new Sabbath day to be Sunday. And so they believe, okay, since the Joshua's long day event, um, you should have moved the Sabbath day to Sunday. And so Sabbath day should be observed not on a Saturday, but on a Sunday. So is this true? I mean, I don't know. Can you see the error in that kind of logic? Do you see the error that they made, right? Yeah, I mean, it, there is an extra full day, right? But that full day that's added, is that evening and morning, the full day? No, it's just morning. It's just daylight. And something unique about that day, which is about 48 hours, because that full day, you tag along, you add an extra 24 hours of of daylight, you get 24 plus 24, you get 48, right? And so that's the full day that was added. And then in verse 14, it says, right? There has never been a day like it before or since, a day when Yahuwah listened to a man. Surely Yahuwah was fighting for Yisharal. And so this day was unique. Joshua's day was unique. It doesn't say Joshua's days, right? It's Joshua's day. It was unique. Ne nothing like that before. Nothing like that since. It's only for that day that you have the 48-hour um, span for a day. So Joshua's long day is unique, and it's approximately 48 hours. Now, having said that, let us define what it means to be a day. What does day mean? What is the biblical definition of a day? Let's go back to Genesis 1, 4 to 8. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness Elohim called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And Elohim said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So Elohim made the expanse and separated water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. Elohim called the expanse sky. And there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And so a day, according to Yahuwah himself, is composed of an evening and a morning. And so if the morning, the day part, happens to be 48 hours, right? Evening and morning, it's still only one day. The only way for you to get two days is if there's an additional evening component, okay? So Joshua's long day consisted of a 12-hour evening or darkness and about a 36-hour morning. But this did not make it two days by the definition of the biblical day right? It was just one very long day. So when we look at the chart again, Joshua's long day, what do you notice about Joshua's long day? There's only one evening period and only one morning period. 
It's not evening, morning, evening, morning. No, it's evening, morning, which means it should only be counted as one day. Not Wednesday and Thursday, but only Wednesday. But this Wednesday is a different kind of Wednesday. It's a unique Wednesday in the history of man because this Wednesday is 48 hours long, approximately 12 hours of night and about 36 hours of daylight. And so what does that mean? Well, there's no need to change. There's no need to move the days, right? There's, so Friday, so what follows next is should be Thursday, not Friday, right? And so this would be how it, this is how it should look like according to their argumentation. Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And so the day seven is still on Saturday, right? This is why Saturday remains the seventh day. It remains the Sabbath. It did not change and move to Sunday. Well, how do we know uh, that, that the Saturday today in our Gregorian calendar is the actual seventh day? Well, let's look at the book of Luke 4, 16 and 17. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. Question, who is this person? Who is this man from who, who went to Nazareth and went to the synagogue to observe Sabbath day? Who is that? Our king, Yahusha. Which came first? This event right here or Joshua's long day? Joshua's long day. And so if Yahusha knew about Joshua's long day, then he could he should have calculated that in if it did change. But is that what he did? No, he did not have to change it because it did not create a change from Saturday to Sunday. And so when Yahushua was here on earth in the first century, what did he do? He recognized that Sabbath day was still the same Saturday that we call today. It was his custom on a Sabbath day to go to the synagogue, and when he went to the synagogue, guess who were there? The Jewish people, right? Because they also observed the same day that they call Sabbath. And so our King Yahushua, at least when it comes to the day, he was in agreement with the Pharisees. I mean, we know that our King Yahushua, they, he criticized the Pharisees so much about how they are to observe it, but the day of when, it, when the Sabbath day used to be observed, well, it was, they were in agreement at least uh, to, that, to that end. And so it doesn't interfere with the celebration of Sabbath being on a Saturday in our Gregorian calendar today. And we talk more about this in our new program. By the way, if you have not yet already seen it, we have a new program. It's called Sabbath Facts. And the purpose of this program is to give you answers to questions that people ask about Sabbath, especially by people who do not want to observe Sabbath. And so they give a lot of arguments. They give a lot of reasoning why they don't observe Sabbath. And so we have a dedicated program to answer questions about Sabbath. And so Sabbath facts, Sabbath frequently asked questions. And in our first episode, we addressed the question, how can we be sure that the Sabbath falls on the Saturdays of the Gregorian calendar? We do hope that you'll take some time to kind of look into that as well. So that's the first question, okay? Now let's go to the second question. This is the question. Good day, Brother John. Sometimes in, in 1996, I radio program in INC, English and Cristo. Na ang host ay some minister ng INC, may kasama siya, I don't recall the name. Question and answer then format ng program. 
may nagtanong na caller about sa pitong kandelero na nakasulat sa Relasyon. I believe that's Revelation. Ang sagot ni Brother... Oh no, I put the name. I forgot to block out the name. Oh no, Brother Ibasco is gonna be mad. Ay hindi niya alam because hindi pa daw na ituro sa kanila mga minister about sa seven lamp, lamp stands. Okay? In, in English, this is how it's translated. Good day, Brother John. Um, Sometime in 1996, I heard, a radio pro I, I heard a radio program of the Galatian Cristo INC, in which the host, a minister of the INC, and another one, I don't recall the name, the program was Q&A format. A caller asked a question about the seven lampstands that is written in Revelation. The minister said that he did not know. He, he did not know because they said that the ministers have not been taught yet about the seven lampstands. So the question is, well, what is the seven lampstands. Who are the seven lampstands? What does it mean to be a lampstand? So where does that question come from? What are these lampstands uh, that the caller is talking about? Let's read Revelation 1, 12 to 13. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man, clothed with a white, with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. And so the lampstand in the book of Revelation is found in Revelation 1, 12 to 13. It mentions it is not only a, lamp, a seven lampstands, it's also golden. Seven golden lampstands. And this was written by the apostle John after receiving a vision. A vision of the glorified Son of Man. Who is that Son of Man? Our King, Yahusha. So he sees in his vision, this glorified uh, vision of Yahusha the Christ with an aura that uh, exudes greatness and glory, right? He's in, he's in his glorious form. And then he hears a voice. And in the voice, uh, he, after hearing the voice, he turns around and he sees seven golden lampstands. So what are the seven golden lampstands? What are they? What do they stand for? Well, in actuality, this is very easy to answer. <laughs> Why? Because it's also written in Revelation chapter 1. All he needed to do, the minister, was to simply go to verse 20, and the answer is there. One of the fascinating things about the book of Revelation is a lot of the symbolisms that they use you don't have to be afraid of the symbolisms because it's actually explained in the same chapter. And this is a good example of that. So Revelation 1, up to 13, a symbol, a symbol of seven golden lampstands is introduced, right? And so what's the answer? What are these seven golden lampstands? Revelation 1.20, the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, are the angels of the seven assemblies and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven assemblies and so we don't really need to look far right the answer is right there in the same chapter apostle john explains himself who the seven lampstands were who are they the seven assemblies the seven churches and so Revelation 1.20 introduces the seven churches, right? Thyatira, Smyrna, Philadelphia, um, and Thyatira, right? And the others. Seven. 
there are seven, Ephesus, and we talked a great deal about the seven churches and seven assemblies. These were literal, physical congregations in the first century. And our King Yahushua had a message for them, which is found in Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. And so the seven golden lampstands are the seven assemblies, the seven churches. So before we conclude answering the question, I mean, there are a lot of questions involved when it comes to the golden lampstand. For example, how can we be? What does it mean that we are lampstands? Because we who are in the assembly of Yahusha, we believe we are lampstands. That's what the Bible tells us, or lampstands, right? So how can we be effective golden lampstands? Because not all lampstands are created equal. Not all lampstands are equal. So what we need to know is if we are the assembly of Yahusha, if we represent the lampstands today, not in the first century, but today, if we represent the lampstand today, how can we be effective as lampstands of King Yahusha? Well, let's turn to the book of Matthew 5, 14 and 16. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So how can we be effective as a lampstand of our King Yahushua when we shine brightly before all to see? You see, as a lampstand, we must bear the light. We must be light bearers. What is likened to light? The commandments of Yahuwah. This is why when you read the book of Psalms 119, it tells you what the commandments of Yahuwah are likened to. And if you have time, I suggest for this week in preparation for our Thanksgiving, why not read the entirety of chapter 119 of Psalms? In fact, it is so significant, we're going to have a separate Bible study just kind of looking and analyzing, meditating on Psalms 119 because it's so impactful, especially how we can be effective light. And so to be effective light, well, you need to read the book of Psalms 119. Meditate on the word of God because that's the light. How also can we be light of the world? By our good works. We share the word. We share our good works. We become light bearers as the lampstand of our king, Yahushua. So that's number one. To be effective as a lampstand, we need to bear the light of Yahushua. Yahushua who said to the world, I am the light of the world. We have to be that light. Okay. What else? How else can we be effective lampstands uh, for our King Yahushua? In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, this is what uh, it reveals to us. The revelation of Yahushua Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. And so here in Revelation chapter 1, the very first verse of Revelation, it tells us the purpose of Revelation. It is for, who are the beneficiaries? The servants, right? The servants of Yahuwah, the servants of Yahushua. What does a servant do? What, what does a servant do? Whatever they want, do they have their own agenda? I mean, what do they advance? Not their personal agenda but the agenda of the one they serve. That's why they're called servants. Servants of a master. Who is that master? Yahushua. Who else? 
Yahuwah who sent Yahushua. And so our purpose to be a lampstand is to be a servant, to be an instrument so that Yahuwah and Yahushua and their purpose will be put forth throughout the world. And so for us to be a servant, for us to be an instrument, what must be seen in us? Second Timothy 2.21, if a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. For us to be effective lampstands, to be instruments of Yahusha, what must we strive to do? We have to cleanse ourselves. We have to repent from our sins and strive to live a life that is holy or set apart, different from the way the world lives. Because if we are holy, if we cleanse ourselves, the Bible says we become useful. You see, if we are lampstands, but we are useless, how then can we be lampstands? If we want to be lampstands and bear the light of Yah Yahusha, well, we have to be holy and cleanse ourselves first. So that's number two. We must be servants for King Yahusha's use by practicing holiness in our life. What else? How else can we be effective lampstands? Matthew 25, 1 to 4. At that time, the kingdoms of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. We have here a parable. And there are many things that we can learn from a parable. There's multiple things that we can learn from a parable. This is why our King Yahushua often used parables, because there are different dimensions of meaning, of meaning and different dimensions of applicability. And so here, we know there were virgins. There were two kinds of followers of Yahushua. These are followers of Yahushua, right? That's what are called ten virgins, to follow, waiting for Yahushua to return. Five were foolish, five were wise. What's the difference between the foolish and the wise? Well, the foolish ones, they did not take extra oil. The wise ones, they had extra oil. Notice all 10 of them have a lamp, right? All 10 of them are lampstands because they have a lamp, all of them. But what makes a lamp useful? What makes a lampstand useful? One has enough what? Oil. Now we know what oil is. What does that represent? The Holy Spirit. This is why in the book of Revelation, when it mentions the seven assemblies and the seven churches, what also does it mention? Revelation 1, 4 to 5, John to the seven assemblies, which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And so for us to be effective lampstands, we need to receive the spirit of Yahuwah and Yahusha. Here the Bible mentions seven spirits, and we talked about this before. Because there are seven manifestations of the spirit of Yahuwah. Isaiah 11, 1 to 2. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. And the branch shall grow out of its roots. The spirit of Yahuwah shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahuwah. 
And so do you notice that there are different uh, manifestations, different works of the spirit here? There's a spirit of Yahuwah, spirit of wisdom, spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel, spirit of might, spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of Yahuwah. And so we have seven, right? The spirit of Yahuwah is like the spirit that enables us to have fellowship and intimacy with Yahuwah. When we can know Yahuwah's thoughts, wouldn't that be nice? When we are studying scripture and we want to know his deeper purpose, his deeper understanding, the Bible tells us and invites us to ask for wisdom. And he is waiting for us to pray that prayer. Beloved brethren, pray that prayer. When you study scripture, ask Yahuwah, give me wisdom. He will give it to us. He will give us fellowship and intimacy with him because of the spirit of Yahuwah. What else? The spirit of wisdom. This represents certain skills and gifts. Like when they were building the tabernacle, there were people who were good craftsmen, people good with embroidery, people who were different who are talented in creating music. And so this is the spirit of wisdom. There's a spirit of understanding, the ability to discern, to see the difference between right and wrong, truth and error. Because there are people who are gullible, people who are easily deceived and misled, right? And so what we need is the spirit of understanding. We need to ask the who, please give me the spirit of understanding, especially now when there's so much deception in the world today. There's a spirit of counsel. This is the gift of encouragement. There are brethren who know just the right things to say, just the right things to do to encourage someone who may have fallen, who are going through difficult times, right? And so they give them wise counsel, wise advice. And by doing so, they become like a lampstand. There's a spirit of might. This is power and strength. This is um, overcoming obstacles because when Yahuwah gives us something to do, Oftentimes, there's going to be an obstacle, right? Because the devil, the adversary, he's going to find a way to kind of thwart what we're doing. So the work of the Assembly of Yahushua is met with opposition. And so I, we need to ask for the spirit of might so that we can break through and overcome these oppositions. There's a spirit of knowledge, special knowledge that we need to know that we could not have figured out on our own. There's this whisper of Yahuwah's spirit giving us knowledge. We need this as well, and the spirit of the fear of Yahuwah. This is the spirit of reverence and true worship. It's the beginning of knowledge. Nowadays, people have lost the awe of worshiping Yahuwah, and so they take it for granted. It becomes a ritual. As the assembly of Yahushua, as we continue to advance, we need to pray for the spirit of the fear of Yahuwah so that we can show reverence in our worship, our true worship of our Father and our King. Yahushua. And so that's number three. We must receive the Holy Spirit. What else? How else can we be effective lampstands for King Yahushua? Well, Yahushua uses a golden lampstand. So not only must we be a lampstand, we have to be what? Golden. Well, how can we be a golden lampstand? In Zechariah 13:9, this third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say, Yahuwah is our God. You read Zechariah 13. Look at the context. Yahusha and the apostles. Yahusha, he, they used this prophecy in terms of Yahuwah, Yahusha being the shepherd and his early disciples being like the sheep who were scattered, right? 
And so this third group, it represents us. It represents those who belong to Yahushua, who made Yahushua their shepherd, but have been scattered and gone through the fire and they're tested like gold. And so we're gonna go through a test. When we go through that test, what must we do so that we can become gold? Bible says we have to call or we have to trust Yahuwah. And we believe this was fulfilled in us when we cried out to Yahuwah, when we said Yahuwah is our Allahim. This is what is meant by Zechariah 13 and the verse is nine. This is why when we proclaim that name, it is like we feel joy. And Jeremiah describes it this way. Your words were found and I ate them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Yahuwah God of hosts. And so there are those who are called by the name of Yahuwah and by the name of Yahushua. So we have to go through the testing of fire. And so two things can happen when a, a person goes through the testing of fire. They can either break down, surrender, and give up, right? Or they can go through it and become like what? Gold. Yahoo wants us to get through it like gold. How do we do that? Let's read Revelation 1.9. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Yahushua calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Yahushua. And so it's no surprise, brethren, that we who belong to the assembly of Yahushua, like the apostle John, who was also called to the kingdom, that we have to go through suffering. Why? Because we are becoming partners with the apostle John, partners with our king Yahushua, partners with the first century followers of our king, partners in suffering. Why are we being, we're suffering? Why are we going through difficulties? It's part of the price, the cost of doing discipleship. Because we proclaim the word of Allahim and we give testimony about our king, Yahusha. But when we receive these persecutions and we decide to keep going, guess what? We, became, we become like what? Gold. And so that's how we become a golden lampstand. We must with patient endurance go through fiery testing. And lastly, Revelation 120, for us to be effective lampstands, the Bible mentions the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven assemblies. And these seven assemblies, like what we mentioned, they were existing church congregations in the first century. Um, Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, Philadelphia, Sardis, there were actual uh, congregations. And in Revelation, the Bible says in Revelation 1, 10 to 11, on the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so for us to become effective lampstands, we have to receive and obey the message that was given to the Apostle John to be given to the seven assemblies. You see, Revelation 2 and Revelation 3 is all about the message of our King Yahushua to the seven assemblies. And if we want to be effective lampstands, we have to understand and apply 
all seven messages of our king, Yahushua. And this message to the seven assemblies, it applies to all the assemblies. Because he also mentions, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. And so for us to be effective lampstands, we have to practice our King Yahushua's letters, his messages to the seven assemblies, which is applicable to all of us, those who have ears, those who have eyes that see and ears that hear. Let us put into practice the message of our King Yahushua. So when we do all this, when we become light bearers, when we become servants because we are practicing holiness, and so we become useful to our master, when we receive the Holy Spirit, when we are patient, enduring all the fiery trials that we go through, and when we put to practice the messages of our King Yahushua, then we can become lampstands. What kind of lampstands? Golden lampstands. This is what we must be. That's the purpose of the seven assemblies. That's the purpose of the assembly of Yahushua today. Someone might ask, you know, what is the purpose of the assembly of Yahushua? Why do you exist? Why, do, why is the assembly of Yahushua here? We are to be what? Lampstands. Lampstands. Golden lampstands that brightly shine. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's our duty as members of the assembly of Yahushua. And this is what we will ask for when we meet together for our thanksgiving, that Yahuwah will make us effective lampstands so that the assembly of Yahushua will fulfill its purpose to shine brightly. And when it comes to shining brightly, Yahushua, there's a promise in the book of Revelation concerning the lampstands. If you still remember the verse, Revelation 1, 12 to 13, then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the son of man. That son of man is our king, Yahushua. The Bible is telling us, we who belong to the assembly, even though we are from different places throughout the world today, who is in our midst? The one who is called the son of man, our king, Yahushua. He's in our midst. Even if he's in heaven, because when the apostle John wrote this, where was our king Yahushua? He was already in heaven. But the message tells us that in the midst of the seven assemblies, in the midst of the people who belong to our king Yahushua, is our king Yahushua himself. In other words, he will never leave us. He is with us. He can be in us if we will open the doors of our hearts. This was one of the messages. In fact, it was his final message, right? Before he concluded the seven letters, his final conclusion, his final inspiring and uplifting message was, let me into your life. Because for us to be effective lampstands, we have to let our King Yahushua in our heart open the door. Yahushua says, I knock on your door. Let him in so that we can be effective. And when we become effective lampstands with Yahushua in us, not abandoning us, what will we be able to do? Let's read the final passage of our studies today. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's in our midst. He can be in our heart if we let him in. And if we let him in our hearts, we can be effective lampstands. Who are those who are effective lampstands? They're the ones who are able to create other disciples. And this is the message of our King Yahushua. Remember what we said earlier? We are servants, not masters. We are servants of a master. Who's our master? Yahushua. What does he want us to do? What's his agenda? He wants us to make disciples. This is why we're going to begin shortly our discipleship program. We do hope that many of you will be committed to that. To learn how to become effective disciples. To be effective lampstands. Because this is what he wants from us as his servants. To create other disciples. To bring many people to Yahushua. To bring people to our king. And Yahushua says, and be sure of this. In other words, he's guaranteeing this. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Up until the end of the age, he's going to be with us. He's going to be working in us and through us. And so, brethren, let this be our mission. Let this be the purpose of our life. To fulfill what Yahushua instructed his disciples to make disciples of all, all nations. We, the assembly of Yahushua, must spearhead and lead this great task and work that was given by our king. That is our lesson. Let us stand and we shall pray together. Everlasting Father, most holy, Yahuwah Allahim in heaven, you are great, compassionate, and full of love. You always think of the future of your people. And because of your long suffering, you want many others to receive your salvation. We know that time is running out. You want us to be committed in the work of discipleship, to be effective lampstands, to shine brightly before the world. Help us, loving Allahim. Help us, merciful Yahuwah, that we can be your instruments in fulfilling this mandate. Our King Yahusha, we surrender to you. We try our best to cleanse our souls. But we know it is by your blood, by your grace, that we can be worthy. But we also know we have a responsibility to maintaining our cleanliness. Teach us to obey your commands. That we may live a holy life, different and set apart from the ways of the world. We know when we become different, we will be the subjects of persecution especially when we bear your precious name, Yahushua, and we proclaim the name of our Father, Yahuwah. When we are going through difficult times, help us to pass the test. Help us to come forth as gold. We can only do so with your help. And so we open our hearts to you now. May you dwell in our hearts. May you be in us and in our midst that we can be strong, that we can accomplish the purpose that you have given to us the assembly of Yahusha, to be your lampstands that we can proclaim to the people of the world about you and about our loving Abba. Father, thank you so much for listening to our prayers. Bless your people throughout the world. 
May we be firmly united in this work of discipleship. We ask and beg everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahushua, the Messiah. Amen.